Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another action-packed season of the Keeping It Real podcast with the MA Youth Team. We are super excited to have you guys back for another amazing season filled with Métis guests from across the homeland. Uh, this season, we are pleased to be by all kinds of people, um, including politicians, educators, tour guides, um, the list goes on. So we're super, super excited to have you guys back on this journey with us. Um, today, we're going to kick it off with an episode with Joe Yuri. Uh, Joe is an Indigenous tour guide from the Jasper region. Um, Joe came to the mountains in 1988, not knowing a lot about his family's history along the Athabasca River, other than saying he was Métis and they had lived there for a very long time. At the time, he was 22 years old, and like 22-year-olds, he was far more interested in making a bit of his own history. He began training and working as an interpretive guide in 2000, and the more time he spent along the river as it carved its way through the peaks and valleys of the Rockies, the more about his own history as well as the history of other Indigenous people in the area who had roamed those valleys began to speak to him. Nowadays, with the help of his wife Patty, they do their best to include these voices in their tours. There are many voices of nature, the voices of the mountains, the rivers, the plants and the animals. Theirs are the voices that he believes needs to be heard. So come along today and join us for this episode. All right, so we're uh, pleased to be joined by Joe Uri today. Um, Uri. Uri. Pleased <laughs> to be joined by Joe Uri here today. Uh, welcome, Joe. How are you doing today? Pretty good. And uh, there is no prize for uh, screwing up my last name um, because you're not the first person to do it. Growing up, of course, I had urine and every other way, shape, or form of it. So um, congratulations. Maybe there should be a prize. You might be the million and one person to do it. And I am doing fine. Thank you. That's awesome. I'm happy I wasn't the uh, the first person. <laughs> so uh, we'd like to kind of begin off this uh, episode today by just um, giving us a brief introduction of yourself and a little bit about your family history, maybe a little bit about your uh, um, where you're from, where your family's from, and all that good stuff. Cool. Well, my name is Joe Yuri, as you almost got. Um, and I live in the Asiniwachia, the Rocky Mountains, uh, Jasper National Park to be specific. I, I've been here for, I got here 33 years ago this year. Um, my, my family line is along the Athabasca River, which is born here in the, in the mountains where I live. Uh, but it's not exactly here. They're, uh, they're, my bloodline are, are the shots which were previously known as Fosinov, Um, but the name came after uh, my great-great-grandfather was born at um, St. Boniface uh, about five and a half months before Riel. He eventually came out this way, and he had been known as a guy named Shershot Fosinov from, from the Buffalo Hunt days, as apparently he was a, a dead shot, crack shot. But his um, claim to fame here in what became known as Alberta was um, shooting the Grand Rapids of the mighty Athabasca halfway sort of down between uh, Athabasca and um, Fort McMurray and and thereby changed the, the route of commerce into the North Country from the old Methy Portage across the Clearwater route uh, and, and thereby changed his nickname from Sure Shot to Captain Shot. Uh, after which I think nuns who couldn't spell Fosinov decided that the children's names would just be shot instead of Fosinov. So that's my bloodline. And we seem to be stretched out along uh, the river since around the 1860s when we arrived in these parts. So um, our, no our second question for you 
you kind of answered the first part of where you live currently. But the other question was, is what is your occupation? I I work as a guide in the park. Um, my wife and I own a company known as uh, the Jasper Tour Company. It doesn't sound very original. Uh, and if I had had my way, being a uh, a man with um, a, a brain only just so big, it would have probably been called the lone wolf. And my wife was like, you're an idiot. And I'm like, why? And she said, well, if you Google lone wolf, where is that? It could be anywhere. Where do we live? Jasper, what do we do? Tours. And we're a company, right? How about Jasper Tour Company? I'm like, oh, okay. And uh, amazingly enough, it was still available. So uh, up, up in uh, it started running. I'd been guiding for some years beforehand. Uh, but what we do basically on um, their boutique experiences, uh, I'd like dealing with small groups of people. And I get people out onto the land largely to see wildlife, to go look for wildlife. We do guided hiking as well uh, and just basic sightseeing. But uh, I, I suppose my forte is, is wildlife experiences. Awesome. Um, what kind of led you to kind of want to get into that occupation is it something you always kind of saw yourself doing or is it something you kind of found later in life with a passion for and what was the kind of process of turning some turning that into to your current day occupation uh it is sort of uh i guess it was a gradual progression but i was working in forestry in bc in the 80s and the contract that I had was up and I saw this sign in, a, in an employment center in, in Prince George that said, Jasper, jobs, jobs, jobs. I thought, wow, I can get three jobs in Jasper. Um, so I came here and, um, of course, like most young people, I was, uh, what was I? I was 22 years old at the time. Uh, you know, you're working in the service industry. But you, I mean, if you've been to Jasper, you know absolutely how spectacular the mountains are. And here I am inside these buildings, looking out the windows, going, I, I want to be out there, not in here. Um, and while, uh, you know, parts of uh, certainly my history were well known to me, I didn't realize at the time how connected I had become once again to the river. And it was some time later that I decided, okay, I'm going to change things up and I'm going to get myself out there. And um, I, I basically got out and I, I, I kind of relied on uh, my own wits, I suppose, and my own edge form of education and connectivity, like things, I don't know how to explain it, but things just kind of started happening. Um, uh, as if it, you know, I don't know how to explain, but something that you were meant to do, right? And 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 I really don't know. But I, I had an event happen one time that really transitioned things, but I, I don't know if I should get into it because it might be long winded. But yeah, so um, obviously, if you live in the mountains and you can be out in the mountains, it's certainly preferable than looking through a window at the mountains. So I just followed that leap. That's it's kind of similar to like a lot of people when I go to the mountains to go hiking or skiing and I just kind of ask them why they're there, why they're working there. They literally just say just because I want to be in the mountains, I want to be outside. And like a lot of people, it's they're there to be in the mountains and like their job just to be just happens to be what they're doing to be outside kind of thing. And like I find that with a lot of people and there's just that passion for being outside and passion for being like on the land and in the, in the mountains. 
Yeah, you know what? That's exactly how it is. And and that story is like my story is probably a fairly common story with a lot of people here. I mean, there's another part of the story too where people come to Jasper and you'll hear this, uh, you know, oh, I came to Jasper for a winter job or a summer job and that was like 26 years ago or whatever. That's a common story. You get here with the intention of being here to make money so that you can go back to college or whatnot and somehow you just get captured. And and it, you And of course, I'm sure you too have been here and uh, you saw, certainly can see why you'd get stuck in a place like this, if you could properly use that word stuck. Um, can you speak a bit of the uh, history of the Métis people in the Jasper National Park region? Yeah, um, you know, it's an interesting thing. And I guess somehow it sort of ties into a little bit about the occupation. And I guess I will tell you this story. Um, I've been doing this for 20 something years. And it, it wasn't always the way that I do it now, right? The narrative in the parks for the longest time, and this is true not just of this park, but it's also true of Banff. It's true of Canada, period. It seems that they had um, very short memories with regards to who was here before they got here, that sort of thing. And, uh, you know, you hear you would hear these tales of David Thompson discovered the past through these mountains. And in reality, David just didn't discover anything. Um, he happened to draw a really great map of it, uh, but he was shown the way by indigenous people as these were trade routes that had been in existence for thousands of years. And I, I run a lot. I'm I'm kind of tapering a little bit on the run, but I mean, I used to run great distances, ultras. And I was training for an ultra some years ago. And I don't know if you've ever been here, but there were um, uh, um, fa- five families that were ushered out of the park we'll say when it became a national park in 1907 and it was fairly egregious and it and the story wasn't really told uh nor and when it was told it certainly the truth of it wasn't told but one of the homesteads is on the um, south side of the athabasca river and in 1989 the the homestead got lit on fire accidentally by a couple of young people who had just come from a climb at Mount Collin. They were trying to warm up inside. And the homestead belonged to a fellow by the name of John Moberly. And I'd seen that homestead plenty of times before it lit on fire. So anyways, this one day I was doing this long run and I popped out onto the plane where his homestead was. And I had made a mistake. And one thing is I didn't have a lot of water with me. And I was probably about 30K into this run. And I popped out and I look up and there's the homestead, which is supposed to be burnt, but it was completely intact. And I just kind of shook my head and I was like, what is? And all of a sudden, John Moberly walked out of the homestead and he leaned up against the wall as I came up. And I was like, I am like hallucinating what is going on. And he looked at me and he said to me in Cree, and I don't speak Cree. Um, I know a smattering of words, but he looked at me and he said, hey, I know you. And I said, you don't know me. And he said, no, okay, you're right. I don't know you, but I know your people. And I shook my head violently and squeezed my eyes shut. When I opened my eyes, the place was burnt. There was no John Moberly. And I was going, what the, you know, like, and so I ran down to the river and I stuck my head in the cold water and I just kind of brought it around. And I'm, I was like, that was incredibly weird. And I didn't tell a soul. I didn't tell my wife. I didn't tell anybody because I didn't know what to make of it. Um, And I kept it under my hat for probably about two years. And then it sort of started to process. And I think what it was, it was somebody telling me this is the connectivity of the river and of our people. And that I 
was doing things wrong and that those people whose voice was missing from the mountains needed to be heard and that I was going to be this conduit. So I started changing the way that I did things. I started sounding off using their voice. That's a tricky bit of business because they're, they have their stories and they're not my stories to tell. You know how that works, right? But there certainly felt to me like John Moberly had given me permission to tell parts of it until such time as their own people could arrive back on the landscape and start telling their own stories once again, which is kind of where we're sort of transitioning into now. So those families were ushered out and they were a mix of um, indigenous peoples of the area, plus um, Iroquois and Nipissing freemen who had moved along with the fur trade and settled in the area and just married into those people. And then Métis mix comes a little bit later, right? Um, but again, it's been, you know, uh, 1907. I mean, it's been a, a long time since their voices were heard. And, um, you know, I, I think in some of those videos that I did for you guys, I sort of explained in my opinion and, I'm certainly I'm probably not the only one who holds this opinion, but our language or any language for that matter is a language that's gifted to you by the land and, and by the things that exist on the land and they resonate within you and out they come out your mouth. Um, those I, I felt that I needed to use their words in order to speak truly to to uh, to the truth of this place. Right. Or the human truth of this place. That's great. That kind of leads into our next question is what's your kind of definition of tourism and like, what's your goal when you have a group of people and um, you, t you take them on a journey? What, what do you feel um, like tourism is and what role it kind of plays for you? Well, um, you know, people have traveled for, uh, you know, the better part of a hundred years, people started traveling the way that we're, we kind of know of it now. And I think um, we kind of got away from something where they used to go as a means of education to explore, to get to know one another, this kind of thing. And now we've sort of segued into the selfie era where people are just going to get that picture and get out and put it on, see how many likes they can get. There's no connectivity. And uh, a place like this, um, the majority of people traveling, uh, and this is true of Canadians or internationals, are urban people. They have had their feet on this much, you know, two feet of concrete for most of their life. And they have, you can't feel the earth. You can't feel its heartbeat through that. And so my objective is to get them here and to sort of properly feel almost like they belong here albeit they're not going to be here long enough to really get that, but just so that they can get a sense for it or a taste for it. So that when they go home, where it is, you know, wherever they come from, even if it is a place that's extremely urban, like you, you know, uh, Edmonton, for example, here you are on this big city, but all you got to do is dip down into the river Valley and don't look up. And you could be somewhere in the middle of nowhere all of a sudden. Right. So it's this idea that you get home and you, find those spaces and those places and then you do your best to reconnect with that and help further those places so that you know other spaces can exist like that and they don't have to simply be in a, a park like setting like jasper national park or a provincial park or that kind of thing they can we can live in those places and and help other things proliferate we always see think about it as just ourselves we're not the only things that are supposed to be living in these spaces right um so i suppose that's 
kind of what I think about it. Um, and, uh, you know, that kind of an education, I think it, it's, it's, it's tapping into things that I think people already know inherently they're there and why it's wired into their DNA, but they've become so removed. They just don't know how to tap into it anymore. But once you just, you know, help them just open it just a little bit, uh, things flood out. And, and I think it, it's, it's addictive. They'll get after it. Right. How can we be responsible and respectful when interacting with wildlife? Well, that is a good question, Skyland, because of course you, you guys watched my videos um, and those videos were good fun, but I did want to touch upon some of that because that kind of behavior, it's not advisable. Um, it's probably not even advisable for somebody who's been doing this as long as I have. Um, but I was being cheeky and maybe taking a, a bit of a risk. But um, first of all, if you watch the videos, I'm in sort of proximity to some animals that you might not want to be in proximity to. And it certainly depends on what time of year for a lot of animals, some animals like right now, those uh, bighorn sheep, the mayatik, they're, they're in rut now. It, when I made the video, it was before that. Uh, more than likely, had I been in that spot at this moment in time, I would have been punted off the side of that mountain. Um, these kinds of things, you have to have a respect for these animals and know that at any time of year that they could be there could be an unpredictability to their nature. Um, one thing about animals in this place is that this has been a national park for well over 100 years. So these animals don't look at human beings in the same way that they might outside the national park. They don't look at you as a predator because they, ha they don't have a recollection of being hunted or whatnot. Um, so they tend to behave a little bit differently. And, and this is very particular to front country animals, those animals that can be seen from roadways. Or, I mean, you've been to town, you've seen the elk walking through town. Waski Sioux used to live in town here, right? So um, one of the things that I think that you um, can think of when you're, when you're um, in the presence of some of these uh, creatures is that you think, don't think of them as something different than you, a brother or a sister, and which they are. And I think if you look at a lot of different indigenous perspectives, you're going to see that, right? Um, they were always like family members. They provided for us. They taught us lessons, which is the same thing that we do for one another. Um, and you see the way that some people treat wildlife. I mean, would you do that with your brother and sister in reality? Probably not. So if you simply just change that kind of mindset, uh, I think you look at it through that lens and you probably will, uh, you, you know, you won't behave quite that way. You know, maybe if, too, if we take everyone's cell phones away, because it is all about the selfie, you know, but, uh, yeah, I just want everybody to be clear that, um, some of the, I'm, I'm not only well-versed in these animals, but those particular animals, I know them, they know me. And it's almost, um, as if they look up and go, it's just him he's here all the time. You know, he never does anything other than stupid things <laughs> like that. Right. No, just kidding. Anyway. That's great. And, uh, if you guys aren't sure of their videos referring to, uh, Joe did some fantastic mischief, um, lessons for us that we're using on our Instagram page and also at his Instagram page that we'll take below. And, uh, yeah, they're very good videos, but, um, that's that's great advice and definitely some advice that I'll I'll keep in mind as well when I go. I'll I'll, I'll throw one thing in there too, um, and it is, um, you know, 
you get to a place where if you, and this is true, if you, if you are traveling anywhere in the world and you guys are all young people, you should get out, you should get to places. Of course, we have to think about climate change and how we move around on the planet these days, but do get out there and find people, experienced people in those places that you're going to go to. Don't just Google something and then jump right into it if you find some of those people and this is where indigenous tourism comes in indigenous tourism is the fastest growing facet of of tourism in canada and elsewhere in the world you can get to these places and find out the first people's experiences with these kinds of things and thereby get educated uh you know um quicker than you might otherwise so look into it for sure um something else we wanted to kind of touch on today is Harvesting is, is a large part of our, our culture and our heritage. Um, as young Métis harvesters and as we kind of grow and learn, what are some things, or also we have like a harvesting education course where some of the things we try to teach and practice is ethics, conservation, and survival. Um, what are, what's kind of some of the advice that you have to young Métis learning to, to learn learn from their, their elders and their ancestors and to kind of live off the land? What are what's some advice you have for them? Yeah, those are good questions. I'm, I'm, uh, I'll have to um, say this is that, you know, I live in a national park. So number one, don't shoot animals in a national park. Um, you get in trouble. Um, go, um, you know, uh, you're going to have to search out some of the other um, folks who are, and there are a lot of excellent people in our own communities to learn better things about this than from me. But I can tell you this in terms of ethics and conservation. All of this goes hand in hand with harvesting. I mean, if you're not being conservative, you're going to get, you're going to shoot what all the animals. And then what are you going to do? You have to think about, the the everything in a great big circle you have to be holistic about this because if you're not ethical that animal has a spirit just like you do and it's not going to look kindly upon you the next time you come out and around and and, and go um and looking for its help whether that be to feed you or clothe you and so, stuff like that we don't exactly do like we used to anymore so you have to be um conservative about it and there are still people in our communities especially those more northerly people who know a far, far greater bit about this than I do. And I would strongly suggest that you look for those people. Obviously, you know, with everything about um, our culture or rediscovering our culture, and I'm, I'm, I'm in the same boat as you guys, uh, you know, there, I know a lot of things, but there's so much that I don't know as well. And I have to do the same thing um, if I want to be responsible about it. So um, definitely um, go down that road and, and, and search for those things. But I would just start with what I've already previously said, just start by looking at those animals um, as being your family and, and not some, you know, something different. Right. And you'll be that right there. Um, you'll have a lot more respect for those creatures right from the start. And I like to think about too, kind of the cultural significance of, of the animals. Like, you think of the buffalo and all the things that it was able to provide, provide our, provide us with, and like we wouldn't have been able to be where we are today without these animals. So it's just thinking yeah. about the significance of yeah, of all you know, in our history as well, for sure. And um, I think that's a that's an excellent thought. I mean, when 
to 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 uh, to consider. And I, I'm sure a lot of you are aware of what has gone down recently at Métis Crossing with the reintroduction of um, of of plains buffalo and wood buffalo white buffalo and waskisu and all these things, these animals on this sort of wildlife park. Now, I, I can't speak to that entirely. I was there for the release, which was absolutely fantastic. It was such a incredibly powerful moment um, to see those buffalo go running up over the hill for the first time in about 150 years was just phenomenal. Um, and I don't know, um, you'd want to talk to Juanita Marwa perhaps, um, but I will say this that i know for a fact um that eventually the capacity and the carrying capacity of those paddocks is going to be overwhelmed by the number of buffalo each year as they breed and i do believe that there will be a harvest there i would hope that what would happen is you know probably it would be a draw because not every uh, uh, uh citizen of the metis nation is going to be allowed to go in there so if you're the lucky person who gets to draw i would hope that you go in there and not only will it be to hunt that um, animal, but as a learning experience, bringing Métis youth in there and having somebody in the know after the buffalo has uh, uh, um, given itself to do everything with that animal that we did in the past. And that's part of reclaiming culture. So that is an absolutely fantastic opportunity that we're just not going to have in other places. And I, um, again, I can't speak to exactly what their plans are, but I'll put dimes to dollars that says that something like that's going to happen. And when it does, I want to be there. Roussan, I'd love to be there too for that. That'd be incredible. Um, can you touch a bit, bit more on um, the Buffalo Treaty? I know that it's something that's kind of being brought up more, but I know like a lot of like myself included don't may, might not know as much as we should. And it might be something that we'd be interested in in learning more about. Yeah. Um, uh, it's something that I've been kind of learning a lot more about lately um, because of course it is so significant to us. There's my <laughs> um, Buffalo, of course, and you touched on this already, but Buffalo, and beaver so you know depends on where you are on the back of the turtle you could say pasqua mostos pasqua we mostos you could say libaflu we didn't use the word bison that's a science word that they thrown into our mix but they were and a misc beaver were probably the two most important animals to us culturally economically you name it right we were evolving with that part of, uh, of 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 the trade, and um, of course, depending on who you read, I mean, we may have had in the early eighteen hundreds there could have been anywhere from sort of forty to seventy odd million buffalo roaming uh, the back of the turtle, and by the early nineteen hundreds, roughly fifteen hundred left. I mean, that's pretty efficient killing. And when we hear these stories about it, I mean, the fingers are pointed usually towards settler society and whatnot. But I think um, everybody has to take a look in the mirror and uh, and accept what their role was in the demise of the buffalo. And uh, if you know anything about the buffalo hunt, when our people rode out on the hunt, um, we were really efficient. And I think I found a figure from a hunt that rolled out of Red River in 1864. I believe it was a fall hunt. And we processed something like 1.4 million pounds of pemmican on that one hunt. How many buffalo is 1.4 million pounds? So imagine that that happens twice a year 
for a few decades and start counting the heads, right? That, that's a lot of buffalo. So the Buffalo Treaty was signed uh, originally in uh, Montana. And the original treaty involved the Blackfoot Confederacy, which is, of course, Sixiga, uh, Begani, uh, Gainai, and the Blackfeet on the American side. They, you know, they were divided by this international boundary, and they refer to um, themselves as Blackfeet on that side. It subsequently, the following year, went on. It was um, there was an adhesion to it where the Stony Satina nations uh, signed on, I believe, in Banff. And since then, it has now spread across uh, to all the way to Manitoba, uh, involving nations, Musquachis, the nations at Musquachis, throughout Saskatchewan, into Manitoba. Everybody is starting to get involved. But uh, when you look through the signatories, I don't see Métis signed on anywhere. And again, um, this was such an important uh, brother to us that I think we are uh, you know, partly responsible for helping the animal um, proliferate again. And not only was it important to us and all those other nations, but buffalo and beaver were probably the two most important animals to the ecosystems that make up, you know, Turtle Island. Um, and everything else, there's such um, a domino effect when you remove one of them from the landscape. The domino effect is phenomenal like it uh, it's far beyond my grasp i'm not a scientist right i'm a naturalist and i rely on science and then you know, personal experience to 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 sort of come up with what i think is right it's absolutely paramount i think that that metis people and our governances uh, across the board that get on board with this um uh, buffalo treaty and i think this is important i'm 55 years old um it's your world now um, this is something that the youth of the Métis Nation can take under their wing and look to because you guys are going to see the results uh, of this. The, the buffalo have been returned to a lot of different places uh, in Canada now, um, usually on reserves and places where there's not a lot of barbed wire. I mean, that's a difficulty. Uh, having an animal that roams such great distances suddenly run into you know, these fences, it complicates things, but the, uh, stuff like that. So... Um, you know, this um, uh, introduction at Métis Crossing plays into it because there, while they're not going to be able to roam the greater uh, portion of the landscape freely, it is a place where Métis people can help educate other people about the importance of these animals. So um, you guys and your team, um, uh, you know, speak to it, speak to our leadership. I, I think you're the, the, the weight of your words needs to be listened to. You're the next generation. They have to listen to you. They don't want to listen to me. Sometimes I'm an old, <laughs> but you know, I think you guys are, uh, you know, this, uh, I'm following along with the stuff that you guys are doing and it's really excellent work. And, uh, and I'm really proud to, uh, to, to, to see that. So get on it. Don't, I didn't say that like being demanding or anything, but just please get on it. <laughs> How's that? You made us some incredible Machif videos for our May tea week. We just wanted you to give us a brief history about the Machif language and the different dialects of Machif. Um, I, I think, yeah, it, you know, as I had sort of stated very briefly in in one of the videos, I'm I'm not a speaker per se, um, like you. I'm trying to learn. I'm trying to reconnect too. And uh, I, I I gave a sort of loose history of the language, uh, you know, languages uh, that were was created 
born of the same sort of genesis of the Métis people themselves, right? It was a blend. It was a mix of things. And depending where you happen to be on the back of the turtle, whether if you're at Red River or what's now Winnipeg, you know, I think they speak the, the machif that you'll hear there is um, certainly a lot more French sounding than a lot of the machif that you might have heard further into the North country, like Northern Alberta, Northern Saskatchewan and whatnot. But there, of course, then you're, you're, you're heavily influenced by Cree people. So you're going to obviously speak a version that's going to resonate with, with those people and certainly that landscape. Right. Um, all I know is it's, it's, it's something, and I don't know if you've tried to say some of these words, but I've never felt words like in English when I say them, uh, I've never felt words resonate inside me. Like it feels like when I say some of the words, that our people spoke like it's almost like you know it's blood memory or whatever like you feel like i i i know this without knowing it you know this right and um you know there's a hashtag that i use quite a bit which is language is culture and it is um and it is said if you lose your language you're going to lose your culture entirely right so i think it's super important i don't know that i'll ever be able to um regain language entirely myself because i'm getting up there but you guys are young enough that there's no reason why within five years or so you shouldn't be fairly fluent speakers and it's important too because i you know i don't think that there are many left i think fluently there, there might only be around 500 between 500 and a thousand people but there certainly are programs through some of our different learning um, institutions, RLI and uh, Gabriel Dumont Institute, Louis Riel Institute in, in Manitoba, uh, that are actively uh, pursuing um, resurgence. It's extremely important. I mean, it's as important as the buffalo is, right? They're all part and parcel. Um, so, you know, the different dialects, as I said, they they, they come from... Um, different placement on the land. And uh, I think when you say the words yourself, you'll feel what feels right. And that will probably resonate with the versions that your, your own family spoke, right? Do you think using the land is a good way to, to learn Michif? Like I think so. Onto the land, experiencing more and kind of applying those words and seeing them and actually putting them to use instead of just trying to study them or read them and, like going out on the land is kind of a better way to make them resonate more. Yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, I think that way of a lot of, a lot of education nowadays and, 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 you know, because of COVID, I think we've seen a lot more land-based learning because people couldn't be crowded in the classroom. So let's get them outside, you know? Um, and so you're outside and with direct regards to the language itself, and if you happen to be with a speaker, an elder in particular, who would point out something and tell you that word in the language, translate it, uh, I, I, and then maybe explain. Because languages, our languages seem to have, there's more... There's more to it than English. There, There's like the meanings of things, like take uh, the way you say welcome, right? Uh, Pitigwe is one that word that's used largely in uh, in Michif, though Pitigwe is still a borrowed word from Cree, or, or or you know it's a it's a version of it. But in Cree, uh, they say Tawau, and Tawau is something that Métis people would use a lot, especially those who are northern. But you look at the, it's used to say, hey, 
you know, welcome. But the greater translation is there is room. Like how beautiful is that? And how much more does that resonate if you guys were to come to my house or into my space, into my territory, and I said to you, Tawau, and you knew it me to be saying, there's room, there's room for you, please come, come, come. You're so welcome here. That's just so much more like you feel that in your heart as opposed to just seeing welcome on somebody's doormat. <laughs> Again, like I said, the, the, the using um, landscapes as a chalkboard and we've touched on this uh, is an excellent tool. You know, um, it puts you right into the learning as well. Right. And you're, you're actively engaged when you're out there. So, um, um, uh, you know, the youth team could bring, people into the mountains whether it's the mountains or whether it's along the river and the river valley or heading up to uh lac saint anne or or wherever you go landscape everywhere there's beauty to the places and it all speaks to you but having somebody to begin with the translations along with you you'll find it very quickly that you don't need a translator anymore that the words will come right it's pretty cool um just kind of moving into the uh, closing part of our interview today is there any, any final advice you kind of want to give me to youth, whether it's youth who have a love for wildlife and want to learn about the animals that coexist around us, or if it's um, youth who want to get more engaged with their culture, whether that's through language or being on the land, or do you have any, any kind of final advice for, for those, for those youth? Uh, it's really funny because uh, I don't know that I would have ever qualified myself as being anyone to give advice to anybody. Um, so uh, it's a weird question to answer. Um, I've been a person most of my life who've just kind of followed my heart. Um, and in doing so, I've made a lot of mistakes. Um, but that's sort of my um, MO when it came to learning. I'm the, that type of person who learns from his mistakes. Um, but I sort of have to make mistakes in order to realize that it was one. At least I used to be like that way. I look at my two sons. I have three kids, but my two sons, my oldest one, he can watch you make a mistake and know, hmm, I won't be doing that. Look, I, they saw the result. Whereas my middle son will go, I can make that work. <laughs> and you'd be like, no, you can't. Is that you? Yeah. Okay, so Skyland, you and I are two peas in a pod. But of course, now I'm a lot older than you, and I realize that um, I can't be uh, bumbling along and banging into walls for my entire life. I have to, at least at some point, say that I learned something. So, uh, advice that I would have wildlife um, get out there. I mean, you know what? Come and visit me. Here, there's some advice. Um, I have all the time in the world for younger people um, uh, coming out and coming on the land. Give me a call. And, uh, you know, if I have the time, of course, if I'm around, I have all the time in the world for uh, for taking somebody out and just showing them around and getting their feet on the ground. But it doesn't have to be me. There's a lot of other folks within our communities elsewhere. And whether it be like my education over here would be completely different with regards to animals, because, of course, my sort of this, you know, have a look, learn some respect, but we're not going to mess with them here. This is a place where we're going to coexist entirely and we're not exactly going to eat them or make clothes out of them. Um, but 
that part is important as well. So go seek those people out too. There are so many people um, in our community that can help you with that. And one thing that younger generations, perhaps my generation was really guilty of is that we sort of turned our backs on our elders. This is such a Western thing where we stuff our elders away in these crappy, well, not, I shouldn't say crappy. They're not all crappy, but we put them in these homes and we tend to forget about them. Um, Don't do that. And if your if your elders have to be in homes for extra care, that's fine. That's great. I'm glad they're getting care. But go visit them and ask them to tell you. And they'll their memories that come up will be so valuable to you. We have to, you know, look upon those lives lived and and start to gather that information again. We have to start it. It's like back to the future type thing. You know, we got to get back to it. You know, it was right. That's why we did it, and we just got away from it. You know. I'm getting goosebumps. You're talking about stuff that I was just talking about the other day about our elders. Two peas in a pod. Two peas in a pod, Skyler. Because I was saying the way I grew up is to really respect your elders. And I feel like a lot of youth nowadays have like lost that or like going to their elders for knowledge. And they don't really talk or acknowledge their own elders. And it's so important. So by you saying this, I'm like, wow, like. You know, I just got home. I spent uh, about 16 days up on the Fort Mackay Reserve, and my auntie had spent over 10 years straight in residential school, and she's going to be 90 in January. And uh, I went up and I sat with her, and I, I recorded. I just kind of interviewed her just like this for two weeks. And we've only so far, we've only got to, like she's just at residential school sort of thing. But to listen to her, and I mean, she's razor sharp. She is razor sharp. Her body may be 89, but her mind is still, it's, it's incredible. So what a valuable resource for me to tap into before I can't any longer. And and not only that, to compile this information, I want to make a story of it. I'm not sure that I can um, take on the voice of an Indigenous woman who survived residential school, but I'll do my best. And if I can't do it, I'll pass the information over to somebody who's better skilled at doing so. But I, I'm telling you, just sitting there and listening to these stories and lessons that I needed to learn, it was absolutely phenomenal. And, um, uh, you know, it's your turn. You get out there and you do it. I'm glad to hear you, Skylin. I'm glad to hear you say this because you're right. There's far too many people who've, who've gone too far away from that way of being, right? I'm one of them. I'm just kind of reconnecting with that part now, and I'm like halfway to being one <laughs> I, I don't know. Well, we have to, when we use the term elder, it does, I, I mean, I might just be elder in the term that means that I'm old, not necessarily wise. Right? I think that's a great, great point you guys make. And like, we might have a lot of like people on here who are, whether it's teachers or um, lawyers or athletes, but sometimes the best, the best teachers can be the person who's a phone call away or sitting across the dinner table from you. So I think that's a very good point to, to bring up and, have our listeners know as well yeah you know and i i you know i'm seeing we're seeing a lot of change in the metis nation right now i'm sure you guys are all up on your metis politics and it's frustrating to me i do not like the politics of division in the least i i find it to be not only infuriating but embarrassing um and uh I was so happy to see uh, the new president of the Métis National Council being a young woman. Time 
for women to return to their rightful place in a matriarchal society and younger women in particular, because I think younger women, you just proved it, Skylin, will think like that. We need to, 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 to look to our elders, to gather up that information, get those lessons. I, I was happy to see that. And I, I hope that she has um, a good run. I hope that she gets some things done. And I hope that all of the different youth teams, you guys and the different youth teams across the board, all get behind her and, uh, you know, and, and help prop her up because I think she's going to need some help. There's, there's still a lot of folks um, in play who, who might like the things their way and maybe are disappointed that a young woman is coming into play, but you know, Hey, Audrey was a young woman at one point in time, not to suggest she's that old. Sorry, Audrey, if you're listening. Uh, this has been a uh, great interview, Joe. Um, before we leave today, I just want to make sure that we, we get your, your contact or your social media where people can find you for more information or kind of follow along your, your tourism journey and kind of see all the amazing things you post on Instagram because you, you do post some, some great content that I personally love to read. So make sure yeah, you show I- out for that. I, uh, you know what, I, I, I appreciate it. And uh, listen, you know, with uh, social media, my Instagram account, my Facebook account, I'm, you know, a lot of people seem to have, I look at accounts like mine, they've got like 80,000 followers. And I'm like, how did they do that? Right. Um, I don't chase the followers. If you follow me, I want it to be because you like where I live. You like the things that we're about you like you love wildlife and stuff like this. I, I don't need people on there just because they're, you know, uh, I don't know. If you get on there and it's not your bag of tricks, get off. I just want to have my, I want to have my people. <laughs> so, yeah. Anyway, you can post that up. I don't know. Joe at Jasper Tour Company. That's me. Jasper Tour Company. I think if you just go on Facebook and look that up or on Instagram, that will pop up. And we can chat there too, by all means. Sky, is there anything else you want to add? Um, yeah, it was just a great interview today. I enjoyed talking to you, and I just love your energy. You have a very special, unique type of energy to you, Joe, and I feel like you can teach so many of us so many different things. Well, I, pre- I appreciate your words. Um, I try my best, despite my body aching, I try to remain young at heart. Um, which I think is imperative as well. Um, I'm, I'm just now starting to balance the, this age thing where I have this youthful heart and this old body and trying to make them meld in my head so that um, my outlook on life remains upbeat and positive despite the way of the world these days. So I really appreciate it, you guys. Thanks for having me on your show. And um, yeah, I, I hope that we'll be able to all get out on the landscape here in the Asiniwachia together someday. Um, so by all means, if you're if you're out this way, look me up and uh, and don't forget to uh, be kind, uh, be safe, and be matey. Thank you for joining us today for another incredible episode of the Keeping It Real podcast, the MA Youth Team. We hope you all enjoyed this episode. Just wanted to give a quick shout out to the MA Voyageurs hockey teams who are going to be competing in this weekend's upcoming Alberta Native Hockey Provincials. So you guys can head out. Um, it starts March 31st till April 3rd. Um, we have a U13 boys team, a U15 girls team, and two U15 boys teams competing. 
Uh, they're going to be in arenas across Edmonton, including Bill Hunter, uh, Grand Trunk, Kingsman, The Meadows, Twilliger. Um, so head over to albertametee.com slash event slash Alberta Native Hockey Provincials 2022 slash. We'll also put the link in the description of this video to check out the schedule and the times of the games. So uh, come cheer on the m and Voyageurs. And uh, we'll see you next time on the Keeping It Real podcast with the m and youth team.